You're listening to your weekly constitutional hosted by Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law in Knoxville, Tennessee. YWC is underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Immigration is one of those perennial political and constitutional issues that just seems to be beyond our reach. I mean, Congress doesn't seem to be able to agree on much of anything these days, so what's the chance that we'll actually agree on immigration reform? Well, my colleague, Akram Pfizer, who teaches with me at the Lincoln Memorial Duncan School of Law, recently published a law review article in which he suggests a solution, a solution that will appeal both to liberals and conservatives and also will likely offend both groups. The problem, as I see it in the United States, as well as other rich countries, is an increased hostility towards migrants, be they permanent or temporary, and how that hostility affects uh, host countries such as the United States political culture and increasingly makes them authoritarian and disregarding of democratic norms such as pluralism and the rule of law. Tell me more about that. You think that our actual our, our impasse over immigration is not just affecting migrants badly, but also is affecting the very foundations of our of our constitutional society? I think it's not just the United States. I think it's the United Kingdom and other rich countries, France, perhaps mm-hmm. even Germany, perhaps the most stable, most important country in Western Europe, Italy, for example. In all these countries, we've seen that the growth in migration, uh, in the number of migrants has led to sort of a populist backlash by uh, native the native-born population, which in turn has made the, the which manifests in a support for sort of right-wing authoritarian political leaders, who show disregard for traditional democratic norms such as pluralism, the rule of law, uh, the basic tenets of Western liberal democracy, and I think. Uh, the consequence for that is parlous altogether. It's bad for us here living in the developed world. It's harmful for the prospects of world peace, as manifest by the fact that, let's say, President Trump shows disregard for multilateralism and our international commitments. And it's overall a bad thing for global harmony and improved living standards. I'll I'll second that sentiment. In fact, I just had the pleasure of um, interviewing uh, my colleague Bill Walton, uh, and his uh, friend Tony, uh, whose last name escapes me now. Sorry, Tony. I just met Tony, uh, as well as some of their students. They all uh, are at the University of Northumbria in mm-hmm. uh, Newcastle upon Tyne in Northeast England, and that is a, uh, a former coal-producing region. I think they still produce some coal there, but like coal-producing regions in this country, it's somewhat depressed. And um, recently, when I was speaking to them out at Montpelier, uh, they had several foreign students with them, that is, non, non-UK students, and one of them was a, a young woman from Poland. And as we were discussing Brexit, which is, of course, their major constitutional mm-hmm. issue at the moment, um, someone made the comment that uh, she and others are considered unwelcome by many people uh, in Britain, and, and notably in that region of the country. And that uh, they experienced some discrimination, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Brexit's coming, you're going to have to leave soon, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, less global harmony. Uh, I was reading an article in the Times this morning about uh, the city of Grimsby, which is a port city in that same region of the country, where uh, nostalgia for the uh, the former fishing industry, which is no longer a major uh, economic factor in that region, had led them to vote 70% for Brexit. Uh, and yet, in doing so, they were protecting an industry that might employ 20 people now in that city. Mm. Um, and they were actually harming their fish processing facilities, which are a major employer and have benefited from EU rules. Um, and uh, notably, a third of the people who work there are from Lithuania or Poland. Mm. So there seems to be a, a pulling back from the international harmony, certainly in Europe and other rich countries. Um, and even in poor countries like Poland over there. So, yeah, I think you're correct in that regard. And, and think, imagine now this young woman from Poland you just described. She's a citizen of a country that has uh, elected a right-wing authoritarian, xenophobic yes. uh, law and justice party that is not exactly welcoming of foreigners and sort of skirts and pays short, short shrift to EU rules about welcoming migrants and the rule of law. And yet she's caught in this right... She's sort of... Uh, therefore pl- plausibly feels unwelcome in her country of birth, 
but is felt is excluded from a country of choice, which is the United Kingdom, unfortunately. Right? Yes. And you think of let's say a city like Newcastle, right? It is a home to a major global brand, which is Newcastle beer, right? Mm-hmm. And in a strange way, much of the world has a tendency to perceive that its means of economic success won't be affected by xenophobic authoritarianism and protectionism, when indeed it's very plausible that the people of Newcastle, having voted for Brexit, and having eminent brands like Newcastle Beer, Newcastle Football Club, things like that, that could be affected by their choices in terms of protectionism and and closing borders. Yeah, if you think about it, economic borders, open borders, economic borders, and free trade uh, mean that people from other nations are our customers. I mean, we produce things they buy, we buy things that they produce. And when you become xenophobic and when you move toward closing your borders and raising barriers, you're essentially thumbing your nose at your customers. I would would agree with that. I would also, though, agree, uh, say that there is plausibly a substrate to the the xenophobic populism, which is, from my mind, very likely the problem of stagnant wages and income inequality within rich developed democracies, Mm -hmm. such that people feel plausibly, understandably, perhaps not condonably, but understandably, uh, that migrants are unwanted pressure for jobs and wages. And that perhaps explains some of the stimulus behind the authoritarian populism we see. Let's say the Trump phenomenon in the UK, the Brexit vote, uh, the Trump phenomenon here in the United States, the Brexit vote in the UK, the rise of the far right in Germany and Italy, right? And the fact that Marine Le Pen succeeded to the runoff of the French general election that elected Emmanuel Macron. Much of the concern, I think, is, is, is rich countries' inability to secure a level of of social harmony and economic justice for their own natural-born citizens for a whole host of reasons. And that is then manifesting itself, that failure to do so, in the hostility to migrants that we currently see, which it's bad enough to be hostile, but the rich countries are going even further and showing disregard for the predicament of people within third world countries, oh, yes. I mean, which the, in turn is the stimulus for much of this migration. Exactly. Uh, as you, I think you mentioned in your article, I know we've discussed this, uh, there are also other things that are providing an impetus for this. Of course, Arab Spring and the terrible mm-hmm. things that have followed after that um, have led, of course, to things like refugees from Syria are trying to get out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to babies drowning on European shores. I mean, some of the images are just heartbreaking. Um, and I, again, just read recently that that problem of uh, unchecked migration from that region has been, to some extent, addressed um, because the rich countries have now outsourced their uh, border enforcement. They're no longer going out to interdict on the Mediterranean or at their own borders, but they've actually started paying some of the countries where the migrants are trying to leave to prevent them from leaving. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you pay a country like, I don't know, Libya, and say, you know, keep your own people there, and here we're going to help you do that. And many of these countries are not exactly liberal democracies, mm. so one wonders at the methods they're using to keep their people in. Absolutely true, right? So yeah. it's contributing to a lack of liberalism in those nations as well. So, and exactly, and so now what do we do about it? Before we get there, one last thing, because this one I think really illustrates what you're saying. Alternative für Deutschland yeah. is a right-wing neo-Nazi party that I think for the first time has gained parliamentary um, representation in -hmm. Germany. And you pointed out that Germany is probably the most important and stable country in Western Europe, and it is. And yet there's this rising right-wing fascist movement. So you want to talk about a country that seems to be turning away, or at least a significant portion of which is turning away from liberal democracy, Germany is just downright terrifying. Exactly. But we have to also be a little simple. In some defense to the Germans, unlike the French, the Brits, the Italians, and the and us Americans, is a large segment of their population are people from the former East Germany, whose living standards are not necessarily commensurate with the typical Western European norm, and therefore plausibly felt very distressed by the arrival of a million Syrian refugees who left the yeah, the Syrian civil war, and and I think to Angela, Chancellor Angela Merkel's credit were offered uh, asylum, the ability to take up asylum should they arrive in German, within Germany. Uh, and that all, almost cost her an election. Exactly right. I mean, her, her, she won re-election, but both the CDU party, which she led, and the Social Democratic Party, which were the two consensus political parties in Germany, 
both of them saw a massive hemorrhaging of their support and she was able to only form a government by forming yet another coalition with the what was would have typically been that she her chief opposition party wow so this is kind of a problem in germany but it's a it's, it's an even bigger problem potentially for the world in that it's manifested itself in the united states which is a country which unlike western european countries is separated from uh, the Middle East by a gigantic ocean, two mm -hmm. gigantic oceans, and is the guarantor of world security since the Second World War. And the fact that we have elected a man in President Trump who's shown complete disregard for the norms of uh, collective security and liberal governance is a very, very big problem for the entire world. Let me just echo that. Um, there seems to be an increasing America first sentiment, isolationism, and as a person I'm no war hero. I've never heard a shot fired in anger, but um, I did serve in the military back in the 80s, and that, of course, was toward the tail end of the Cold War. Um, and so I had firsthand experience with the, the, the role that the United States plays in guaranteeing the peace mm -hmm. and in, in leading a coalition of governments that we ourselves put together at the end of the war and, and an economic system that we ourselves created and the United Nations that we ourselves drafted mm -hmm. the charter for. Everything we did at the end of the Second World War now seems to be unraveling because we have a Congress and a president who don't seem to like it and seem to think that this is evidence of some sort of outside influence that must be combated when it's the very system that we constructed. And yet, to, to, to be fair, though, by the, in respect to the contraposition, though, it's a system we constructed that increasingly seems to not benefit a larger and larger segment of the American population. Just to counterfactually conjecture, how many, how, what percentage of the American demographic that, let's say, serves in armed forces benefits from the open trading system? Right? You could argue that your French citizen with universal access to healthcare, education, and the German citizen with the same, or the British citizen which, with, with the same things, they perhaps benefit more directly than the American citizen who takes on, for example, punishing levels of student loan debt to be educated or has to find ac pay for their health care access. So one of the things we have to look at is what are the, what are the things we have done domestically that have, has engendered this sort of recalcitrant response to American to America's leadership role in the world amongst, you could argue even perhaps even the majority of American citizens. Yeah, I guess that's true. We have to ask that question, but I'll, I'll answer something you said a, a minute ago. Who benefits from free trade? Well, we all benefit from it. Mm -hmm. In fact, people who shop at Walmart may be among the people who benefit the most because it's ridiculous how inexpensive some things are at Walmart. My wife recently commented that she paid the same for an article of clothing this year that she paid back in the 1970s. Um, gasoline prices are ridiculously low by mm -hmm. historical standards. I mean, I know it's always painful when you see those numbers climbing at the pump, but think about it. Gas prices really haven't risen, mm -hmm. except for a couple of major spikes here and there, and it's a, it's, it's a volatile commodity, but they've remained remarkably low for a remarkably long time, and that's all because of free trade. So we all benefit from it. Now, I realize that that's a general benefit that you sort of take for granted. Mm -hmm. And that the costs of free trade, which are dislocation, deindustrialization, people losing their jobs, individual cities and towns where those manufacturers were concentrated suffering, those are much easier to point to hmm. and say, this is what free trade has done to me. Isn't it terrible? But then by the same token, that person is able to get cheap stuff at Walmart. Hmm. Um, Maybe we haven't educated people enough in this country on, on the benefits of free trade and on the benefits of the international organizations that we put together at the end of the Second World War. Maybe, we, maybe we've fallen down in that department. That could well be the case. I, I'm, I'm guessing. I, I, my guess is you are right. I think that one of the other things that we have to be honest about is in the United States we lack the same built-in economic. Uh, uh, we don't have the same safety net as in other mm -hmm. Western countries, such that the loss of a job is a much more consequential moment for an American citizen than it is for his or her French or German or British equivalent because there's no, there's not the same protective safety net. And if you look in much of the country, you know, Western Virginia, where you came from, mm -hmm. 
uh, or West Virginia or any part of Appalachia or the American Southeast, you see, for example, the consequences of a very, very, very weak safety net, which in turn manifests itself in politics because people who fall beneath the safety net typically become either apolitical or hostile to the current political consensus. Well, you've hit that one on the head. Uh, I lived in southwest Virginia for 15 years, and I lived in a place that most people would pronounce Buchanan County, but it's pronounced locally Buchanan County. And my understanding is that Buchanan County, which has one of the highest unemployment rates, uh, perhaps in the nation, certainly in the state, and where the coal mines don't seem to be reopening, um, was, I think, the single county where the vote for our current president was the highest, mm. um, the vote totals. And that whole region is solidly um, conservative in that regard. Um, so maybe that's exactly what's happening, is that people who have been left behind are the ones who are most likely to vote in that regard. And I'm sorry to say, the most xenophobic as a general rule. Mm. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week I'm speaking with Akram Pfizer, my friend and colleague from Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law. We're talking about immigration, and we're going to talk some more about it after the break. Stick around. to you weekly constitutional i'm stuart harris and this week our subject is immigration specifically can we fix immigration my friend and colleague akram pfizer recently wrote a law review article for the university of tennessee's law review and he's got an interesting solution thus far we've been talking about the problem but pretty soon we'll talk about akram's proposal um okay well we've discussed the problem then mm -hmm. uh, and i think probably you and i are more or less on the same page when the problem is discussed but what is your solution? I don't have a solution. Mm -hmm. I, I have a discussion point. Which, mm -hmm. and the discussion point I have is <clears throat> a recognition that people all over the world like a level of social cohesion, a level of uh, demographic stability as part of their lives. And that in conjunction with the, in, from my perspective, the need to accommodate migrants for humanitarian reasons I think requires us to revisit our consensus on immigration, which on migration, which is strict but somewhat generous uh, granting of migration status, granting of permanent residency to mig migrants, with the chance at eventual citizenship. Right. So let me pause there just to make sure I understand. We are a relatively generous nation in terms of the number of immigrants we take. I think historically, Historically, yes. we have been. I mean, there have been waxing and waning of that. Uh, but we do have at least strict legal limits of who can come here, mm -hmm. from where they can come, how they can get permanent residence, whether they have a chance at citizenship. Exactly. A system that's been overwhelmed uh, yeah. by non-documented illegal immigration. Um, okay, and you think that that so, system is something that needs to be reformed? I think there's two <clears throat> The United States system of immigration, which was is largely a concomitant of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, is premised on the notion that the the country has can control immigration largely from two from Europe and Asia, in other words, from lands remotely situated uh, and separated by us from two major by two major oceans. The reality is the United States is a country that's now on the on the which is the destination point of a major world migratory route that comes from Central America through Mexico into our country. And, the, and we have never recognized that. And the consequences being that we have now between 11 and 12 million undocumented residents who are citizens of either Central American countries or Mexico living within our borders. So the fact that we've not recognized uh, the demand to migrate to this country and our laws haven't reflected that has led to an illegal immigration problem or undocumented migration problem that is now affecting our political culture. Because what do we do about people who've been living here potentially for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, 5 years, in an undocumented fashion? And think of the stress that puts on those individuals, how it makes them susceptible to things like crime, exploitation, uh, 
and how that affects us. Yeah, what's a migrant worker supposed to do if he's not being paid a living wage or he's suffering abuse on the job? Exactly. Who do you go to? And at, at the same time, the fact that we have this world migratory route has led to massive demographic changes that make native-born Americans quite uneasy. So, for example, in places like South Florida, for example, and Central Florida, you can't get a job as a nurse unless you're fluent in Spanish. And much of the, the much of the much of that change is brought about by unauthorized migration that the local natural born population has not consented to. So you can see an obvious backlash against this. And so what I'm recommending is that the political culture before, before you go, I'm sorry, before you go on, I've I've had a I've heard a good friend of mine who is not a racist uh, once complained that she was traveling in Miami and went into a store to ask directions and the no one in the store spoke English. Mm. And the people in the store seemed to be offended that my friend did not speak Spanish. Sure. And so she said for the first time she walked out on a street and all the signs were in Spanish. She did not feel like she was in her home country anymore. Exactly. So that's, the, that's what you're talking about is that it's been such a rapid change, much of it uncontrolled, um, that there really has been a cultural linguistic shift in certain areas of the country to which anyone might react rather strongly. Exactly. And I think liberals are remiss when they treat the country uh, as a glorified work visa program. You know, where, in other words, where people can migrate on demand, live and work, regardless of the sentiment of the native-born population. I think people have a natural desire to sort of have some social stability and demographic stability within their countries. And I think it's legitimate of conservatives who fear the political consequences and cultural consequences of democratic change to insist that they at least have some say in how that change is effectuated. So I think it's legitimate for conservatives, therefore, to be engaged in a dialogue as to what is legitimate change. In other words, I think liberals are remiss when we don't acknowledge that conservatives have a legitimate point that, uh, that conservatives have a legitimate grievance when they say that they deserve a say in in terms of uh, they deserve a say in how the demographics in their community changes. Yeah, and I think that we can even generalize on that. Um, you mentioned that I was from Southwest Virginia, and it's true. Um, I think someone of the liberal persuasion might say, "Well, if your local textile factory, your local coal mine shuts down, well, then just move and get a job elsewhere." Mm-hmm. And at least those of us who are fortunate enough to be highly educated um, ourselves have probably moved around and typically looking for jobs. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. where you go. But people who are not so fortunate and perhaps don't have the education um, don't really feel like they can move, and they certainly don't want to move. When I lived in southwest Virginia, there is a peculiar, well, it's peculiar is too strong a word, but there's a specific accent Mm-hmm. Um, that is generally derided in other parts of the country. People from that region are derided as hillbillies or stupid mm-hmm. or whatever. And the people from that region know it because whenever they leave town, they're treated that way. And so to tell such a person, well, you know, don't worry about the coal mine closing, just you know, move to Charlotte and get a job in a bank, mm-hmm. they don't see that as a viable alternative. And in fact, they feel like they're giving up not just their family ties, not just the family home, their relationships, but an entire culture that they find, uh, that they value. And they don't want to be part of sort of an internal diaspora. Uh, they don't want to do that. They, they don't like the fact that anybody would even suggest they need to do that. They want to stay there and they want to keep doing what they've been doing. Now, that might be an unrealistic, economically an unrealistic viewpoint, but it's strongly felt and it's understandable. Exactly. I, I think, though, we have to, though, get back to the reality, which is there is going to be a migratory surge affecting the developed world in the coming century, whether we like it or not. Estimates are that Nigeria's population by the year 2100 will be over a billion. Nigeria's going to be over a billion. I mean, that's a I staggering did, I, number. That is a staggering number. I did not know that. Right. And so if you can, if you, you just have to look at, just conjecture, look at the relative economic growth rates and the per capita income levels of most sub-Saharan African countries. Look at them, for example, in many, uh, look at the per capita income and growth rates of many Middle Eastern countries. Look at them for some of the South Asian countries like Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and you can surmise that with political instability, 
furthered and facilitated by ethnic strife and global warming, there will be a massive migratory surge of people looking for an improvement in their living standards to countries such as Iran. The question then for us is, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Now, plausibly, what we sh- should be doing about it right now is is undertaking policies to limit the effects and minimize the risks of global warming and state failure in those countries. That, of course, is requires a level of foresight few democracies can effectuate. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, once these people start arriving in our shores, I don't think it's going to be consistent with our democratic values to just show them, the, just exclude them or put them in prisons or seek to expatriate them illegitimately like Australia has done. I mean, Australia is right now putting people in Papua New Guinea to avoid them seeking asylum within Australia's borders. I don't know if that's going to be really feasible for us. We tried that, for example, with Haitian refugees, forcing them in Guantanamo Bay for a while, and that was difficult enough. My argument is that's just going to be the tip of the iceberg, what we did with the Haitian refugees, because the problem is merely going to grow over time, especially because there's not much evidence that there's going to be improved living standards in Central and South America anytime soon. Having said that, what are our means, therefore, of accommodating this migratory surge such that we can remain liberal democracies, we in the United States, Britain, Western Europe, Canada? And my argument is perhaps the way we find a bipartisan consensus around this is to substitute a, a, a temporary residency with work authorization paradigm for the current immigration and asylum with immigra- immigration paradigm with permanent residency and naturalization, which limits the number we can actually take in. So my argument would be if we can assure conservatives that migrants will be here on a temporary basis, very plausibly they'll consent to much greater numbers of migrants being taken in. And that in turn will enable us to avoid the sort of xenophobic authoritarianism that we risk falling into and help facilitate and prevent a humanitarian crisis of things like capsized boats that we see currently in the Aegean Sea when it comes to, for example, Syrian refugees leaving mm-hmm. Turkey for Greece. So you're talking about a permanent guest worker program? A, 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 a temporary residency program that enables people to be both workers and residents within our borders. In but other words, not citizens. Not, not citizens. In other, the country could still maintain an immigration and naturalization pa- paradigm, but it would ha- it would but that would be supplemented by a temporary residency program. Okay, so we would keep our current program, so you'd have one path to come if you wanted to be a citizen. Yes. A very narrow path, very difficult path to get on, but then there'd be path number two, and that path would allow you to come, have a legal status as a guest worker, but without any path to citizenship and with, with no expectation of that. Um, and then you would probably, what, be here for a period of years? Period of years, five years, ten years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, my, my recommendation is for five-year visas mm-hmm. without the right to permanent residency. So you'd have to reapply after five years if you wanted to stay. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and you'd have to show under my proposal good cause to stay. For example, that you would not be safe to return or repatriate to your country of origin. But just to counterfactually just work this through, very plausibly, if we had a, a guest worker program, as the Germans called Gestarbeiter program mm-hmm. that they that they have, how many of those eleven to twelve million unauthorized, undocumented immigrants? would actually be unauthorized and undocumented. Very plausibly, the majority of them would have temporary uh, work authorization or work authorization to be here, and they wouldn't be undocumented. They just wouldn't be entitled to permanent residency and citizenship. And I think that would be better for them, and it would be better for us because we'd have a means of accommodating them in a, in a manner cons- consistent with our laws such that they wouldn't risk exploitation on the back end by, let's say, uh, unethical employers or various other concerns within our society. All right. But what about the 14th Amendment? The 14th I mean, Amendment. They would have kids when they were here, right? You're not going to stop them from yeah. procreating. That's exactly true. So one of the problems is the 14th Amendment, which was uh, enacted in 1868 in response to a parlous Supreme Court decision called Red Scott v. Sanford, which said that African Americans who are natural born, who are born in the United States, are not citizens. Uh, the, 18th, the 14th Amendment came in to remedy that and said that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States 
but it does say subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Mm -hmm. And my argument would be that we treat foreign workers who migrate here on a temporary guest worker program uh, like diplomats who have children here. The child of a diplomat is not an American citizen because diplomats are not under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government and their children are not U.S. citizens. Let's pause there because I, I think that's something that probably most of us have not really thought about, yeah. but it makes a great deal of sense. I mean, if the, the British ambassador comes over here and she has a child while she's here, of course, that child's going to be a British subject. Yes. That child is not going to be a U.S. citizen. Exactly. So we already have a class of people who do not get the, the benefit of the 14th Amendment citizenship provision. And you're saying that we could do the very same thing with people who are in the guest worker program. Exactly. Hmm. And so what we could do is have them, let's say, waive as a condition of seeking, uh, seeking a temporary residency, waive their entitlement, waive the ability of their kids to seek permanent residency or naturalization or natural-born citizen status. I recognize it's not my favorite outcome to treat people uh, that way. My concern is if we insist on perfection, it ends up becoming the enemy of the good. And we in the United States and other rich countries, for example, will merely look away and disregard suffering in the developing world like we are currently doing in Syria. As you point out, um with all of its imperfections, a guest worker program would, we hope, uh, be create a situation where people are, are going from a terrible situation to one that's less than perfect but is significantly better. So a person from Guatemala, for example, who was fleeing some sort of persecution or simply poverty or whatever the, whatever it is, would be better here even though would be in that this guest worker status than he or she would have been back in Guatemala. Uh, so that's one argument in favor of your proposal, but let me play devil's advocate. The citizenship issue we've already discussed, but what about the, the inevitable demands of a significant portion of these people that they want to now convert, they want to get off of this guest mm -hmm. worker track, and they want to apply for and become citizens? Uh, how do we respond when that happens? Because I, I think it's fair to say after five or ten years, after twenty years, uh, certainly people who are born here are going to feel like they're Americans culturally, politically, linguistically perhaps. I mean, don't you think it's inevitable that this group of people will stay here one way or the other and will want to be citizens? I, I completely agree with the problem. I'm not happy that this will create this problem. But remember the, the side of Ilan Kurdi, the Syrian child, the little baby toddler in, mm -hmm. who died and drowned on a capsized boat, and his body was washed up on the shores of Turkey and found by Turkish border guards. We saw how tragic that was. That was terrible. And what was the cause of that? Very plausibly, it's, it's, it, the, the, the root cause of that is the unwillingness of developed countries to recognize the migratory surge in a, major, in a mature way. And my, my sub, I recognize it won't be easy to forcibly repatriate people or to have a second class of residents who are not entitled to either permanent residency or citizenship. Having said that, I think that's better than having people capsize on boats or have their humanity be disregarded by artificially segregating them from the developed world. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with my buddy, the guy who works down the hall from me. His name is Akram Pfizer, and he's got some very interesting ideas about how to reform American immigration policy. Stick around. And now it's time to finish our discussion with Akram Pfizer, a professor of law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're talking about Akram's article in a recent issue of the University of Tennessee's Law Review, all about how to reform American immigration. You also point out in your article that keeping these people in their current status, that is, as citizens of their home nations, and encouraging them to go back at the first opportunity might have beneficial effects in those countries. Exactly. I mean, think of, for example, a country like Haiti. I totally understand the benefits 
to those individuals of migrating to countries like the United States and Canada as Haiti has suffered has suffered from political instability uh, and earthquakes and other cataclysms. But who do we expect to be the people rebuilding Haiti to make it a successful country in the coming generation if indeed all those people with skills and talent migrate to developed countries? Right. right. It doesn't necessarily ha- uh, doesn't necessarily help Haiti to have its best and brightest migrate to ca- countries like Canada and the United States. And similarly, does it really, really help the predicament of democratization in Central America and Mexico to have their capable citizens permanently be- uh, repatriate and be- just become American Hispanics? Yeah. I don't necessarily think so. Now, the short-term answer for Mexico is obviously the current situation is favorable, right? Because it, it it assures that there be worker remittances sent to countries like Mexico, which is, I think, the second highest source of foreign currency for the government of Mexico after petroleum exports. But it's simply that, people who are here, some of them illegally sending money back to their relatives. Yeah. Exactly. But is that an enduring means of ensuring democratization and human development in Mexico? I think not. Similarly, I don't think it's necessarily an enduring means of dealing with problems like state failure in the Middle East to have people permanently leave countries like Syria, uh, Syria, Iraq. I think country, developing countries need their human capital. Right? In fact, right now, for example, you could argue that Africa is suffering a massive brain drain. Right. Every year. In fact, I've, you'll hear people say in the United States, we've got, you know, the, all these people want to come, so why don't we just pick the best and the brightest? Let's, you know, let's pick all the engineers and the nurses and the doctors and the high achievers, and we'll select those people to come. Um, well, okay, from our perspective, that might be mm-hmm. positive, but for the donating countries, if you will, it's a brain drain. Yeah. And yes, it will add to the suffering and decrease the democratization. Um, Think so, of, for example, like the paradigmatic example of a migrant group, Indian doctors. Mm-hmm. Right? But what do we lack in rural India quite often is doctors, right? They're coming here. Yeah. And is that, that may be good for the Indian doctor because now he's got a comfortable six-figure salary and is, has an upper middle class lifestyle in the world's richest country. But is that necessarily good for India? Yeah. A very good question. I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, do you think conservatives would really go for this? I mean, because your proposal, even though it would give a different and supposedly temporary status and no path to citizenship to this group of people, it still would allow significantly larger numbers to come in. And so the man on the street can't tell whether an immigrant is legal or illegal. I mean, it's still going to have a cultural and linguistic shift, a demographic mm-hmm. shift. So wouldn't it conser- if I'm a conservative and I don't want that to happen, I'd say perhaps, well, you're, this doesn't really do anything because it's going to still change the society around me. But I think conservatives should not be just easily dismissed as nativists. I think conservatives have a deeply ethical foundation for their conservatism. Many of them are very, very strongly religiously motivated. And it could well be the case that conservatives have a very principled, humane response to try and welcome foreigners. I think what conservatives are concerned about is the following. If, if Barack Obama... If, if Mitt Romney won the same proportion of the white vote as Jimmy Carter did in 1980. He would have beaten Barack Obama in a landslide, right? Mm-hmm. The the problem, in other words, for the for the for many conservatives is the migratory, the demographic changes have changed the political culture in a way that makes it very that, that makes the their makes the country much different from the country that they thought they knew. Okay, I've heard that argument. So if we let all the, the migrants in, they'll all be little Democrats. That's what conservatives are very concerned about. Okay, so your proposal would address that, because you could say to them with a straight face, no, these people will never vote, and, at least not legally, because they will not be citizens. Exactly. In other words, they're not going to be entitled to vote, and therefore they won't change the political culture by their temporary residency. In other words, they'd be akin to migrants in countries like Switzerland, Dubai, the UAE, right? Mm -hmm. Or the Gestarbeiter in Germany. They'll be able to live, work, pay taxes, make contributions, improve the culture. I mean, think of the you know, they'll, they'll, they'll improve the culture and the bonhomie within the country, but they won't necessarily change the politics by, the, by be becoming a, being entitled to voting citizenship rights based on their presence here. And I think a lot of conservatives have disquiet because they feel that uh, they call this pejoratively chain migration. People come in in an unauthorized manner, 
they are able to effectuate naturalization because their kids are become citizens and are able to sponsor them for citizenship. And then the country's voting population shifts in terms of its demographic makeup in a way that they don't recognize. Chain migration might also be called family reunification. That's exactly uh, and true. That, that's you know that's how the migrants themselves might very well describe it. Do you think though that with all of its advantages? that you're still going to be creating a second class of human being within this country and that eventually and inevitably, especially once a significant number of, of these people come in, um, that they will resent that second class status and they will want to become full citizens. I guess I've asked you that question before, but... I, I stipulate I'm not satisfied. I, I, as I said, this article is to start a discussion. Right. It's not to claim it has all the answers. And I, I totally respect and understand where you're coming from in terms of raising this concern. But let's go back to first principles. We do have a second class of people living in this country. They're called unauthorized immigrants mm -hmm. or undocumented or illegal immigrants. And there are 11 to 12 million of them, right? And then we have a gigantic number of people who are living in this netherworld of as international migrants in refugee camps and the rest. And that number is only going to burgeon in the coming years. So we have to remember where we are before we make a claim that we have a, that my policy risks undermining social cohesion within our country because right now we are hardly in a cohesive environment either municipally within our borders or internationally in view of the unmet demand for international migration. Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with Akram Pfizer about how to reform American immigration policy. Have you gotten any reaction to your article? I mean, it's been out for a while now. Uh, not directly. Mm -hmm. Not directly. That perhaps is a function of the fact that people are busy. Uh, I think one of the things is we, we, I think, struggle in the United States with having a discussion on immigration because it's so politically charged and it so touches on the sensitivities we have as demographic groups. I think, it, from my experience, most whites are relatively opposed to immigration, but they're quiescent about it because people of color have a tendency to call them racist for enunciating their disquiet over immigration. And that leads to the worst of all scenarios, which is a, host a silent hostility between demographic groups. And you do nothing about it. And of course, I think we have to acknowledge that there are certain groups who benefit from the current circumstance mm -hmm. and who are more than happy to see it continue. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but it's, I don't think, too much of a stretch to say that if you are a farmer, especially in the Southwest, uh, this sort of immigration, this illegal immigration, is a cheap source of labor for you. That's and, right. And you want it to continue in some form. That's perhaps true, lamentably. But I think uh, many farmers, though, they don't like, they're very fearful about being. Uh, penalized or charged for violating the uh, the immigration laws in their employment, and they would certainly welcome a temporary worker program that would greatly expand the number of people we allow in our country as temporary workers. Right. So to conjecture, how many people crossing the border right now illegally would actually stay permanently in the United States, but for the fact that that we don't have a temporary worker program? Many of them, for example, the only reason they end up patriating, they end up becoming unauthorized immigrants or undocumented workers is because it's so cost prohibitive for them to cross the border by paying a coyote to smuggle them across. Mm -hmm. It could be five, six thousand dollars each way, and it's a risky, dangerous. Uh, that's that's $12,000 round trip. That's the better part of their annual income, right? Yeah. If indeed they had a temporary worker program, they just cross back and forth legally in a manner that we can all be comfortable with from the United States. Uh, and they may actually end up 
living in Mexico and just migrating here on a temporary basis, and they may actually leave their children in Mexico and their families in Mexico, but actually have to be able to be secure that they can go and see their families when they need yeah, to. Yeah, and at least in, in the border regions, you could have literally people coming in on a daily basis, exactly. or certainly a weekly basis. Exactly. This is a very personal issue for you, isn't it? Well, I'm born in Sri Lanka, so I'm naturalized as an American citizen. Mm -hmm. And I do remember quite vividly when, my, when, we were, when I was younger, when I, my family was, when we had Sri Lankan passports, it was clear to me that what the government of the United Kingdom and its border control people were trying to keep away from their borders were actually people from the developing world who were unwelcome within their country. And it, it, you, I would feel the insult of, feel, of feeling like a global toxin pervading the global commons that rich countries wanted to keep out of their borders. And therefore, well, let's just pause there. You're right. You know, having traveled with an American passport on a number of occasions, I don't think I appreciate just what a privilege that is. Mm -hmm. And pretty much anywhere you go, with some notable exceptions, that American passport is, is your, your status symbol, mm -hmm. and you're basically welcomed when you go there, and people are not concerned that you're going to come in and become an illegal immigrant. Yeah. And yet, if you come from almost any other nation, uh, certainly in the developed world, then you're not going to be treated as well when exactly. you're traveling. Exactly. So it's a completely different world if you have a British, French, American, Swiss, right? EU passport, Canadian passport. Canadian, your parents are in Canada, right? Exactly yeah. true. And so that has made international travel very easy. And I get to see the beauty of the world whenever I want, on demand. Not so simple if you have a passport from a country like India or Sri Lanka or uh, Cambodia or an African passport, right? Mm -hmm. And the rich world is very, very careful to make sure people from those countries don't seek uh, permanent residency within their borders. But the problem is taking that position is going to be increasingly difficult in, a manner, in view of the migratory surge we're likely to see. And my conjecture is if we continue on that path, probably we'll, it'll belie our beliefs in human rights and it will undermine our democracy to basically insist on sort of create, treating, creating a fortress America or fortress Europe that is secure from international migration. Well, Akram Pfizer, what a compelling narrative and what an interesting story and what a, an intriguing proposal. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thanks for having me, Stuart. It was a pleasure. And now it's time for a constitutional quiz recorded before a live audience at the We the People 2018 State Finals for the Great Commonwealth of Virginia. Assisting me is quiz gal Meg Hubeck of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia and teacher Stephanie Hessian. We've got another great team here from Maggie Walker Governor School. Wow. I like this team. Okay. Can you tell me a little about yourselves? Um, my name is Priya, and I'm a senior at Maggie Walker. Okay, great. I'm Kellen, also a senior. Okay, and you guys are boyfriend and girlfriend. You're a couple, right? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think he's kind of cute. Okay. Thank you. That you're more, you're more than welcome. Okay. What do we got here, Meg? Well, we got another Supreme Court case, and it's one that I know was discussed in Unit 5 today. So, to give you a hint, are you ready? Yes. What was the finding of the Supreme Court in the New York Times versus Sullivan case? A, the First Amendment protects all statements. B, the First Amendment protects all statements about public officials. C, the First Amendment protects public officials from being written about in the media. D, statements about public figures are protected except when made with malice. And E, organizations may print erroneous facts about public officials without fear of retribution. D? Ding, 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 hey, ding, well ding, 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 ding. Great job. The tort of defamation which can be written, in which case it's called libel, or can spoken, which is called slander, existed long before there was a constitution and long after there was a constitution. So you can actually be penalized, typically with um, money, damages, simply for saying something. That's interesting, isn't it? 
How can you be legally penalized simply for saying something if the First Amendment protects your right of free speech? I mean, you've got a government actor. You've got the judge ordering you to pay somebody a million dollars just for talking. Well, the court addressed that issue in one very specific circumstance in 1964. What about me criticizing a public official or you criticizing a public official or a newspaper criticizing a public official? And the Supreme Court of the United States said, while we're not going to completely rule that the tort of defamation is unconstitutional, we are going to place limits on it, at least when it seems like it's going to affect the political process negatively. In other words, it's very important for common folk, it's very important for the free press to be able to criticize and question public officials. And so we're going to make it more difficult for public officials to sue for libel. They're not going to just have to prove negligence. They're not going to have to just prove that you were wrong with what you said, but that you're going to have, they're going to have to prove that you acted with what they call actual malice, which either means that you either knew that it was wrong when you published it or said it, or that you acted recklessly with reckless disregard for the truth. So the court chose a middle ground. So you can still be legally penalized simply for saying something that's false about somebody else that brings their reputation into disrepute. I have a question for you. Yes, may I finish that, it? Yes. Is that easy to prove that malice has occurred or is it di something difficult to prove? Meg, I'm so glad you asked that question because very, very few lawyers have ever been able to prove that a public official was libeled by a newspaper. It's an extremely difficult case. And you know what? I know, I know somebody who did that. You do? Yes, I do. Who is it? That would be me. And my yay. And yeah, come on. That's when you clap. Yay! Okay. And actually, my law partner and wife. And we actually had a case where we represented a public official who had been defamed by a newspaper because they published nasty things about him when they knew that those things were false. And they ended up having to pay a half a million dollars, which was pretty, pretty cool. Good for you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. OK. All right. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. All right. Thank you. James Madison is widely recognized for his accomplishments as a statesman. But what kind of father was the father of the Constitution? Although he never sired a child of his own, Madison adopted his stepson, John Payne Todd, at the age of two upon marrying Dolly in 1794. Despite his esteemed parentage, Payne never amounted to anything more than a profligate, prone to gambling, alcoholism, and depression. Worried Payne was locked up in debtor's prison, Madison wrote a letter in 1825, urging him to make his whereabouts known. What shall I say to you? It is painful to utter reproaches, yet how can they be avoided? Your last letter to your mother made us confident that we should see you in a few days. Weeks have passed without even a line explaining the disappointment or soothing the anxieties of the tenderest of mothers. I must not conclude without imploring and conjuring you to hasten to the embraces of your parents and to put an end to the uncertainties that afflict them. Your affectionate father, J. Madison. I'm Matt Dara, speaking to you from the Potter Studios at Montpelier with the Madison Minute. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Akram Pfizer, who told us about his new article in the Tennessee Law Review, all about immigration reform. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephants. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are part of the American experiment. <laughs>